0: Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rail Delivery Group's Big Conversations podcast where we chat to leading minds across British industry about reconnecting the UK in a post-pandemic world. I'm your host, Robert Nisbet. I'm the Director of Nations and Regions at RDG. And today we're going to be speaking to Isabel Dedring, who's the former Deputy Mayor for Transport in London and Arab's current Global Transport Lead about the government's 2050 net zero targets and driving a green recovery as we emerge from the pandemic. Isabel, welcome. Now, I have to say Global Transport Lead... That just sounds fantastic. I love it. What, what does it mean? So, sum up your job title for us.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for those of you who don't know Arup, it's uh, 16,000 people, roughly, and we're all over the world, uh, but we're headquartered in the UK, founded in the UK. A lot of people don't know that Arup um, is a not-for-profit trust. It's actually founded as a, effectively um, a totally different uh, corporate structure from a lot of other companies. And, and because of that, it has some really interesting values all around sort of, you know, making the world a better place. And so we work with cities, rail operators, you know, property developers, everything from sort of project creation all the way through to operations and maintenance and everything in
0: between. So this is everything around the built environment, basically?
1: Yeah. And that was our our heritage and our background and our history. Um, and since then, we've moved into, you know, we work on HS2, um, HS1, in fact, you know, all around the world, we work on urban metros, um, you know, highways, and now, you know, the new generation of where roads and streets are going, and, and the ability to kind of bring all the relevant disciplines from the whole project life cycle together very early on to figure out how's this going to work and what do we need to know about what's going to happen in two years time in this project and avoid those problems by designing them out at the beginning.
0: And, and that must have been a big part as well uh, uh, of your role as deputy mayor for transport in London. I mean that's, that's an enormous brief that you had but you can't just consider transport on its own, it's got to sit along or uh, aside all the other disciplines.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the built environment is very siloed as an industry in general. So transport you know, we often kind of beat ourselves up about being quite siloed too, Um, but it's a feature of the built environment generally, you know, so you can have all these different teams within, for example, the GLA, within the mayoralty, the planners and the transport planners and the housing people, they're all not necessarily, you know, had the same training singing from the same hymn sheet. Uh, So there's always a big challenge of drawing people together across different professional backgrounds and disciplines but i've found often you kind of really need to find the enthusiasts and the champions and the people with the right kind of energy and sometimes almost have a bit of a fifth column you know secret brigade behind the scenes that all want to make change happen across those teams and and if you can work together in that way you kind of can get it right at the outset and then you don't have a lot of the problems that we often experience in the built environment as you kind of move through the project.
0: So I would imagine that for someone like you that's looking at the, the, the whole picture, a reset moment like this is, is potentially actually quite exciting, that there are some big minds now thinking, and I know it's become a bit of a cliche, but I think people understand uh, when we talk about Build Back Better, what we actually mean that must be this must seem like a great opportunity for you
1: yeah it's super interesting i think there's a lot of you know things move in life i guess in general but but also in politics in a very non-linear way so you have these times where you you're pushing so hard trying to make something happen and it just it's so sludgy you can't move it forward and then all of a sudden it's like surfing you catch the wave and suddenly you're just zooming along making things happen and this is one of those moments you know where it potentially there's an opportunity for quite a few of the things that we'd all like to see in the world not only as professionals but as individuals you know cleaner air fewer carbon emissions a fairer society there's this opportunity where everything's sort of thrown up in the air a bit to Put the thing back together in a slightly different and better way from the way it was before. Something I don't think is very helpful is when this sort of magical thinking of you know, do you remember in the first lockdown, people were like, "Oh, no one will ever drive their car again, right?" You know, people are only ever going to cycle everywhere, and you know that that's not realistic, um, and that's not likely to happen. But I think there will be, you know, we're going to resettle down around something that is slightly different. And the challenge is to kind of actively guide that, I think, to make sure that it resettles down somewhere better than where we were before. So, yeah, I think it's a really, really exciting opportunity on on a few different dimensions there, which we can talk about.
0: Well, let's go to a baseline then and uh, look at what you know, kind of Britain's environment was like before uh, the pandemic I mean, in terms of things like air quality, water quality energy consumption you know where was the uk on like a a global scale yeah
1: it's interesting in my old job you know at city hall we we would cities all talk to each other all the time right you know behind the scenes and um endlessly they're being compared to each other you know why don't you do what berlin's doing why don't you do what new York is doing and um but actually you know in many ways the uk and, and london at the time are you know well ahead of lots of places um, and largely because it's a densely populated environment and therefore you know, what tends to happen when you have you know, fewer, di- you know, less distance to travel, people living in cities, that tends to be more environmentally you know, positive in the round on a number of dimensions. Um, but you know, clearly way more needing to be done across the board uh, in the UK. And, and I think there is a really exciting opportunity for the UK to be a leader on the world stage in these, some of these areas. Um, But, you know, trying to be the leader in everything isn't going to work, right? So, you know, it's brilliant The PM set out an ambition around hydrogen. He's really got kind of, you know, enthusiasm for hydrogen, and that's quite clear in the 10-point plan that the government's put out. But Lots of other countries are saying they want to be, you know, leaders in hydrogen. So I think where we can make the difference in the UK is having had quite a lot of experience in some of these areas to date and having some quite distinctive strengths around, you know, some particular technologies or thinking or modeling capabilities. You know, there's a whole host of different like quite particular skills that if we can actually be the leaders in doing it at scale as opposed to talking about it, that's where I think the big, you know, that's where the game's to be played, right? Everybody can build one of something, right? We can we can easily have one, you know, hydrogen train or one electric bus, but it's about how we can lead in a large-scale transition so that we're actually seeing this as the norm across the board.
0: So the government obviously has set some quite ambitious targets, specifically around net zero. Uh, what are those? and how has this pandemic helped us potentially get on a road to achieve them? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think think one thing that, you know, hasn't changed is, for quite a while now, lots of governments have had targets around. Not zero, right? Or, you know, 80% reduction by X. And it's always several decades out, and there's lots of reports. Where I think things are changing is is two things. One is, if you look at something like the 10-point plan that the government put out, that's much more concrete about these are the focus areas, these are the kinds of things we're going to do. It's not a full plan, right? It's not, you know, and here's the 15 things that we're going to do, and we will hit, you know, five gigawatts of hydrogen by 2030. But it's it's at least more like a delivery program and less like an ambition, Um, and that we're seeing, you know, certainly at Arup with our clients, I would say in the last even 12 to 18 months there's been a huge shift in the public sector and the private sector. I actually think completely unconnected to COVID, but just coincident with COVID um, off the back of a lot of the Greta Thunberg stuff. There's just been a total change in corporate culture in terms of the priority that's given to things like sustainable development and climate issues. So that's, that's really exciting. And that is then putting all of us, not just the government, but also the private sector, slightly into the hot seat of, you know, right. Okay. Well, you know, here's all your brilliant brilliant targets. So how are we going to actually mobilize to, to deliver that? And that's where I think we are kind of not just in rail, but in a, in a whole number of, of different industries and now actually kind of need to really pick up the pace and build on some of the, as I said earlier, so these sort of pilot schemes, initial forays, you know, and, and actually think about, right. How do we actually have every car, every bus, every, you know, train station, whatever it might be, um, be net zero.
0: So you're suggesting then that this is not a, a problem uh, that should be approached by just the public sector or just the private sector. You're saying that in order to unlock uh, the, the benefits to, to the environment and to wider society, the public and private sectors have to work alongside each other.
1: It's about saying this group of five or ten people we are a team, effectively, and we are going to make this thing happen together. Something quite concrete, which could be a hydrogen reformation facility linked to, you know, offtake for the transport network. And there's five or 10 key players that get together to decide to make that happen. I and mean, the other element to this is also there needs to be, in my view, more purposeful connection between policymaking and if you want to call it industrial strategy right so if we want to see jobs in these places green jobs in the right parts of the country uh to promote you know social equity leveling up um and and we have that you know kind of dimension to our thinking from a public policy perspective we need to link that much more clearly with um you know what kind of policies are we putting in place to incentivize precisely that kind of activity to happen. So, you know, very simplistically, if we're saying we're going to accelerate the rollout of green buses, then how are we making sure that we're building buses and creating jobs in green buses in this country at the same time? Uh, when we kind of can bring those two things together in a, in a more purposeful way, uh, we can, you know, see a better outcome. So the, the last area that I think is interesting in uh, around this question is there are a few policies that have, you know, that are real game changers that have been discussed for many, many years, often been seen as politically, you know, untouchable. Uh, for example, the question around road pricing, integrated mobility pricing, the fact that the entire transport industry is now, you know, on its knees financially uh, because of COVID. Um, whilst obviously very bad in many ways, also creates the opportunity to start to think about whether we rebuild back our business models around something that is designed to support, you know, a fairer, more even-handed approach to, for example, charging for for, um, movement on the transport network integrated across modes, uh, but without the kind of problem that you've got at the moment, which is you don't pay to drive down the road, largely, you pay for fuel, Now we're going to have, you know, more and more vehicles, and that's rapidly accelerating that don't use fuel. So that revenue stream is drying up rapidly for the Treasury. So, you know, this is, I think, potentially a tipping point moment for some of those types of policies that maybe previously were seen as, you know, unacceptable, too difficult, too different. There's potentially an opportunity here uh, for those types of interventions to happen. But, you know, it's quite touch and go. It's hard to tell how that's going to, pan out at the moment, certainly in this country. There's other countries, though, you know, if you look around the world, much more serious activity looking at these sorts of things. So there will be movement in this space. And the risk for the UK is to be, you know, we don't want to be on the back foot or the laggards. We want to be you know, on the front foot and leading the charge, um, not being dragged along behind other countries.
0: So I understand that uh, what you're suggesting is kind of build in those incentives, and now perhaps we have the opportunity as we build back better to to do just that and be a be a world leader rather, as you su- suggest, a, a follower. And we do have an indication, don't we, from last year that if we don't take action now, that the potential for us to see a car led recovery is a very real possibility, isn't it? Because we did see people almost using their cars as like their own PPE uh, in the summer when things were kind of briefly opened up in, in, in England especially. People got into their cars and that got pretty close um, back to uh, pre-COVID levels. That surely uh, should send a a warning flare up to government.
1: Yeah, and I think incidentally, I think it goes beyond just traffic levels, which um, evidence around the world is, is supporting what you're saying there. Uh, there is a disproportionate, you know, return to the car or over return to the car, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, it actually goes beyond sort of raw miles traveled. It's also people driving um, less safely. Um, you know violating the speed limit more often, et cetera so there's kind of a whole host of kind of worrying things that come out of that from a pollution and road safety perspective as well, which is you know somewhat by the by, but actually you know not what we want uh, to be seeing any of us. So for sure we don't want you know that to become the new sort of settled state of affairs absolutely and I think there's a number of reasons for you know really thinking about how we uh, how we price is part of that question. Um, but it's very likely that for quite a while, possibly you know, a very long time, the nature of movement is gonna change. So are people gonna travel less? No. Um, are they going to almost have greater travel needs because you're gonna have the commute into the center in cities, but you're also going to have a lot more movement around neighborhoods. Um, and therefore it's almost, if you're a, you know, if you're a transport provider, you're having to do all the things you did before and also provide a whole host of services that maybe you didn't you know, really think you had to provide previously. Um, you know, Certainly in most cities around the world, the focus of the public transport provision is around the commute and specifically the, mo- the morning commute. I don't think there will be radical changes in how people move around the world, around the city, um, much less than people think, because over Many thousands of years, when there's been big disruptions, be that you know, volcano eruptions or the Black Plague, you know, what what you what you find is that broadly people revert to broadly what was going on before. Um, but there's an there's an opportunity here to just much better calibrate how we incentivize the right behaviors, not only by the consumer but also on the supply side.
0: You're listening to the Rail Delivery Group's Big Conversation podcast. And we're talking to Isabel Dedring, Global Transport Leader for Arup, talking about how to drive a green recovery. And it's really interesting what you said, Isabel, there, because as you were talking about incentives, I was thinking, yes, we're talking about how to incentivise uh, business to, to to maybe change uh, you know, how, how it supplies services. But the incentivizing the consumer piece is also uh, really significant here, isn't it? And, and that is giving them different different options perhaps to the ones that are already available and that of course is is important and a very live discussion in in the rail industry for example
1: you know we want people to do the right thing we we want them to buy an electric car we want them to get out of their cars and get into you know bicycles trains etc and so we kind of use moral language when we talk about that because we that's how we feel um as professionals and, and and even consumers might feel that from a morally abstract perspective um that isn't the way that you get people to do those things generally so you know it's quite interesting there's a lot of studies that show that you know no matter what kind of group of individuals you look at for almost almost any decision making process you'll often see 20 percent. you know yeah right there with you progressive you know i want to do the right thing Twenty percent aren't going to do it no matter what, unless you basically ban them, you know, or force them to do it. And then you get that sixty percent in the middle, and they're not going to take the train instead of their car or take the bicycle instead of their car um, because it's the right thing to do. Most people are going to, you know, do something because it's the easiest, it's the cheapest, it's the least, you know, friction-based. <laughs> it, it's you know, it, for a whole host of very natural reasons. And um, I think there's a there's a really interesting need to bring more people with a retail background and a consumer industry background into the transport industry generally, because if you think about something like road pricing or new ways of pricing, you know we always approach that with great trepidation as transport professionals. We're like, Oh gosh, you know what are people going to think? And we kind of see it through the lens of fare increases, don't we? You know that's why the annual trauma of having to put up fares. Um, Whereas if you're a retailer, you say, okay, right, what new thing can I offer this person? where well, they're just gonna be so happy to pay me more money. I mean, look at Amazon, Deliveroo, you name it. So if you think about that kind of um, perspective on this question, you know, how do we bring people back onto the transport network? Might have nothing to do with reassuring them. It might be about giving them something really lovely that they you know, never knew they needed, the thing. Um, and and that's the starting point for everything is the consumer. And, and so we, we kind of struggle to see that we might actually be making people's lives better and be charging them in a different way and maybe even charging them more. And it's finding the ways to do that in a way that really resonates and lands well with the consumer to, amongst other things, drive, you know, yes, bring people back onto the network, and and drive um, you know greener outcomes as well.
0: So almost like a combination of uh, of carrots and, and and sticks that maybe in some way we're kind of d- dissuading some people to take you know less environmentally friendly uh, modes of transport while encouraging them with the uh, the retail carrots that that you're suggesting there. So that that's kind of the, the the retail environment. What about the big infrastructure environment? You mentioned HS two right at the uh, at the very beginning. Uh, and obviously there are many discussions going on about you know kind of investment especially leveling up investment and looking at places in in Britain that maybe historically haven't had the same level of investment around the very densely used commuter belt uh, around London but HS2 for example how important is this in the the green recovery debate
1: yeah i mean i think for sure the if we just look at you know uh, let's say the more obvious bits of what we can do as rail industry um you know the trains the stations how we operate the network um i I agree with what you said at the outset you know rails in a good position it's not like if you look at the highways industry globally there's sort of this sense of like we're the you know we're the bad guys or or the aviation industry right you know they're 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 painted as the bad guys from a green perspective and to a certain extent they kind of sometimes take that on board although there's fantastic opportunities for them to actually drive and catalyze change and so that's the kind of journey they're on in the rail industry, we're sort of the good guys, right? You know, we're, we're taking people out of their cars. We're, you know, creating economic connection. And that's better understood within the rail industry amongst professionals than it may be. The opportunity to drive positive change in the rail industry uh, is better understood than other parts of the transport industry. So that that's a really great opportunity. And, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're working on... Um, well, loads of bits of HS2, um, but you know, if just as one example, uh, the HS2 interchange station, you know, that's bram outstanding, and it's wonderful. I mean, what's been designed there, what we've done all around, you know, it's not just about the the the, the building fabric. It's about you know, cycle parking, how it integrates into the surrounding community energy use on the site. So I think there's there's lows that we can do in, in that space. And I guess I was thinking about this through the lens also of the if you look at that ten point plan from government, yes there isn't, you know, a point that says green rail, right? You know, oh right, that's our one. Um, but if you look down the list, you know, there's things about buildings. Right, railway stations. You know, there's things about incentivizing movement on greener modes of transport. That's us. Hydrogen economy, yep, there's a role for rail there. So actually, rail's got a kind of lot of opportunities across the piece, whether that's in its placemaking role as, you know, a center of a precinct. Interchange is one example, but there's you know, obviously loads of other, you know, major railway stations that can have that catalytic effect on how people move and live um it is the vehicles themselves it is how we operate them there's this whole range of things so it's almost that can be a bit challenging though because it's quite disparate it's not this is the one thing this industry needs to do to you know get itself to be green um, and one of the challenges therefore in looking across that piece is that you know people i find do tend to sort of what's the you know over focus on one or two things because it's something they can hang on to you know. Uh, And and trying to keep that breadth of understanding of all the different places in which the rail industry can affect not only, you know, green growth, but also, you know, this rise in interest, rightly so, in more equitable distribution of growth. You know, rail's got a huge role to play there. But I think um, like other transport bits of the transport industry. To do that effectively, to have that impact across the board, whether it's hydrogen economy, whether it's high quality buildings, whether it's, you know, green vehicles, rail can have that impact, but it has got to be more opened out to other industries. And that's the challenge, right? So we have all the connections we have within our industry, but then we've also got to now. You know, be connected out into the energy industry because we've got, you know, we've got a totally different drivetrain technology new sources of fuel, et cetera, et cetera. We've got to be connected into the built environment sector because of our impact on, you know, how people move and live and the the kind of surrounding placemaking around uh, what we're doing. There's the whole meta, you know, economic impact of something like, you know, long distance rail like HS2. So uh, I think there is a challenge there for the industry, but which, you know, I think it's well positioned for, which is to be um, ever more, you know, outreach based and looking beyond its own boundaries is the number one way in which the industry is going to have an impact both from a green perspective, and also in terms of the wider sustainable development agenda.
0: We're coming up to the end of our time, but just one final quick thought, if, if I could, from you, Isabel. I mean, you sound optimistic, are you?
1: The challenge of delivering kind of step change or catalytic change in an industry like ours is much more rewarding when you get it right than in an industry that's already very, very fast moving and agile. But the opportunity when you get it right is huge because you've got a much you've got this huge canvas, right? You know, there's there's millions of cars, not 10 cars. There's you know thousands of miles of railway. So the the kind of platform is huge. Um, so it is a lot harder to achieve change, and that might make other people less optimistic, but you can achieve significant transformational change with tenacity, focus, perseverance, and mobilizing the right people sometimes in some quite unexpected quarters. And when you do it, it's incredibly rewarding because you can see your impact at quite a big scale. So so yes, I, I am optimistic. I think we've got to get better at leveraging some of the new people that are coming into our industry because of the way the industry is changing, whether that's green skill sets, whether that's digital skill sets, You know, the push on inclusion and diversity, I think, is great across the built environment industry, Um, certainly rail, highways, et cetera. You know, it's a much more topic of conversation. And I think kind of enabling and and empowering those people who aren't kind of dyed in the wool in our industry over many decades, of which I now sadly need to include myself, uh, that that makes me even more optimistic, actually, because I think that the volume of change agents that we should expect to be seeing coming into the industry is going to be higher than it's been in the past. And I think that's a great thing.
0: A really positive note on which to end. Uh, Isabel, thank you so much for such an interesting discussion and, and for appearing on the show. And, and thank you, everyone, for listening as well. Um, you can find this and other episodes on raildeliverygroup.com and uh, follow the hashtag Dardy uh, Big Conversations, on our Rail Delivery Group social channels. Thanks very much indeed. Let's hope that we all meet together to talk another um, big conversation very soon.